This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Broadcasting live on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and in the evening on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk, it is the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Yay! It's uh, New Hampshire primary day. Cliff Schechter is going to join us coming up here in about a half an hour to talk about the New Hampshire primary. A a doozy of a comment from Trump today. Uh, Four o'clock hour, Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer, and uh, I believe Don Carr is going to join us, an author, brand new book out with him. We'll get to all that a little bit later on. Patrick, how are we today, my friend? Doing pretty well. Not sure how much you've followed the New Hampshire stuff so far, but it's interesting. There's traditionally this one little town that votes at midnight. It's only, I don't know, about you know six, seven people or yeah, whatever. Uh, uh, it's, uh, Dixville Notch, I think it's called. <laughs> Gobbler's Notch or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something wildly inappropriate. Those <laughs> sickos there, they, they're up all night anyway with their swinging sex parties in New Hampshire. Lots of maple syrup involved, but yeah, they, they it was it was a slam dunk. It was a uh, was it all the votes went for uh, Nikki Haley? Yeah, like all six of them. Yeah, it was funny because someone posted this morning Donald Trump saying, "Hey, Dixville Notch, I just need you to find me seven votes." <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, yeah, it's we'll talk to Cliff about that coming up here in a little bit. So, uh, how many of the movies, how often do you get out to go see a movie or two there, Patrick? A couple times a year. It's not something I do all that regularly. Kind of when I'm in the mood, I'll, I'll go to a movie. How how many did you see this year? Anyone? Any of the big ones? I'm trying to think. Uh, it wasn't, it was, it was kind of old by then. The last movie I remember seeing in a theater was I went to see the, the, the second Spider-Verse film. Oh, that was, that was, that was this year. That's, and that's actually nominated for an Oscar this year. Yeah. And the, the category. The other film I remember immediately offhand was that Gerard Butler movie, Plane. I think that was last spring. Oh, yeah. That one did not get nominated, but it, it did, did not, not get Razzies. Okay. I saw the Razzie list. It was not on the Razzie list either. Uh, no, that uh, the uh, the uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, uh, those movies, uh, Sony does them. They're fantastic. They're just so well done. And as a fan of Spider Man comic books as a kid, they just nail it. I mean, they really do a great job with those movies. So it's uh, I don't know if it's going to win. There's that was it. The Boy and the Heron is everyone's kind of pegging that one to be the animated win this year. So the Oscar nominations are out. All right, so. American Fiction, which some of these just kind of came on out, and I'm not sure where they're streaming. If they are, they might just be in movie theaters. Uh, American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. And I got to tell you, there's at least two in there. I'm like, what? Uh, But, you know, like I said, I'm going to guess they've been released relatively recently and there. That is the reason why. So there is a lot of – okay, I, all right. I do not think 
I'm, I'm just going to go right, first of all, to the um, director category. Because the, the, the thing which is crazy is that um, uh, the, um, the, the Greta Gerwig did not get nominated as a director. In this, she didn't. Uh, Justine Trett for Anatomy of a Fall, Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, Yorgos uh, Lathamos for Poor Things, and Jonathan Glazer for Zone of Interest. Also, for leading actress in a leading role, Margot Robbie did not get nominated, although I would make an argument, I thought, and I think part of the problem was with both Greta Gerwig and with Margot Robbie is there's this stupid mentality that because it was pink and it involved a doll and it involved pretty people and, and this, that it, it wasn't serious film. I, I, you know, they don't get me wrong. They got a, quite a few nominations, and I'll get to a few of those in a second. But, I mean, my God, how do you not nominate Greta Gerwig and how do you not nominate Margot Robbie? I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. I think that the, the, front, the, the, the leader in the clubhouse on the women, the leading actress in a role is going to be Lily Gladstone for Killers of a Flower Moon. Everyone says uh, she's fantastic. I have yet to see that film yet. But uh, the clips I've seen, she is magnificent and everyone says it's hers to lose. The other two names you see come up a lot are Emma Stone and Poor Things and Carrie Mulligan and Maestro. I'm not saying that Margot Robbie is necessarily better than any of those. As a matter of fact, I've heard Carrie Mulligan in Maestro is, is stunning. But at the same time, I'm just kind of surprised that – I mean, it, it, she really did a good job in that role. And even – I mean, well, they have that role, one line in the movie where Helen Mirren kind of pokes fun at it. It's like, of course, you know, talking about someone who's ugly. And she's like, Helen uh, – Margot Robbie is the worst person to cast in this if that's what you're trying to do. Uh, that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm, you know, messing up the quote. I, you know, nothing against the best directors either. But, I mean, how do you not take – Greta Gerwig took something which I didn't think was possible, took Barbie, and turned it into a very – it wasn't it – was, it was cartoonish in its style because that's just the nature of it. But it was actually one of the most human movies I saw this year. And I, I just I'm, – I'm stunned. And as a lot of people already are pointing out, isn't this kind of the point of Barbie is that it's a men's world and that this is – you know, that women have to work 20, 10 times harder just to get one-tenth of the, the, the acknowledgement? And, uh, uh, you know, I hate to say, yeah, Academy, you kind of screwed this up, but I think you screwed it up there. Now, the rest of it, I don't think they necessarily got wrong. Um, the actors in a leading role, uh, Bradley Cooper and Maestro, Coleman Domingo and Rustin, I have no idea. Paul Giamatti and Holdover, Cillian Murphy and Oppenheimer, and Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. Um, best Supporting Actor, Sterling Kane Brown in American Fiction, De Niro in Killers of the Flower Moon, Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling in Barbie, and Mark Ruffalo in Poor Things. So Gosling does get a nomination as Ken, but Barbie doesn't. I will say one great thing that happened for Barbie is America Ferrera got nominated, and uh, I don't know who's going to win in the supporting actress role, because it's Emily Blunt for Oppenheimer, Daniel Brooks for Color Purple, American Ferrer for Barbie, Jodie Foster for Nyad, and a Divine uh, a, a Divine Joy Rudolph for The Holdovers. And, you know, I, I got to believe America Ferrer, that one speech she has in that movie is... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys in the movie theater. When I was in that movie theater, there was 
as loud as an applause after that speech as there was at any time during the Marvel movies in like Endgame or or any of the other stuff. It, it, dead serious. It was just you know an absolute rounding round of applause there. So I wouldn't be surprised if America Ferrera gets it. Um, I won't necessarily get into the screenplays, but I will say uh, of the songs, I'm just Ken got nominated. So Ryan Gosling is going to have to sing that song. I don't know if they're going to get the whole cast from the movie to sing that with him. Uh, it would be fan freaking tastic if they did. But still, I mean, overall, I don't think they got it wrong. But I just, how in the world is Greta Gerwig not nominated as the director? How in the world is Margot Robbie not nominated for Barbie? I just, I, 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 I think sometimes, you know, you know, and just, and maybe just this is just how good Greta Gerwig was. Is she nailed this eight months ago? And yeah, nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six. 6205 is the phone number. Uh, Generation Z. I've got three of them in my house, and yes, they are going to change the world. I, I have zero doubt about this. This is a very interesting generation, uh, a generation that is it's, – it's different. It, it is – and I honestly think the one thing that changed who these kids are as they grew up in this world – was the consistent threat of gun violence in their schools and the Republicans going, your life doesn't matter more than the gun manufacturer's profits and the bullet manufacturer's profits. And that's just that. We could stop this tomorrow, but we're going to feed you to the endless cycle of of gun carnage that this country has become. And I think that was, for them... They, we force them into a very adult situation and as opposed to just kind of run away from it. And I don't want to necessarily just say Generation Z. I think the late millennials as well also just change dramatically. I think that they, it's, it's not so just, you know, there's not a cutoff there. Late millennials as well just were like, wait a second here. Why do I have to be your sacrificial lamb? And that was the beginning of it, the overturning of Roe v. Wade did not help the Republican cause. This is a very active, very astute, very educated generation that's coming forward. And a new study is coming on out here. Uh, Generation Z in 2020 voted at higher rate than previous generations did for the first time they were eligible. Another 8 million of them will be eligible to vote in 2024 elections. Now, this this raw story story comes out, but will they? Because heaven forbid we actually say, hey, you know what? Yeah, things are looking positive for the Democrats without saying, but it all could come crashing down around you at any moment. So you should be terrified. <laughs> Seriously, isn't that really what we're looking at now? It's like, hey, you know, Donald Trump is incompetent, but Joe Biden's not going to win this. So, it all, I mean, it just the nar- the narrative the media has to portray to basically, yeah, whatever. In a matchup between Biden and Trump, many young voters say they will might choose silence, said Teen Vogue reported last week. After a record-breaking youth turnout in 2020 it helped decide the presidential election for Joe Biden, a recent poll released by Harvard Kennedy School shows young Americans seem less likely to vote in 2024 than they were in 2020. According to the poll, at this point, the 2020 cycle, 57% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 were planning on vote. That number has declined down to 49%. 41 million members of Generation Z could vote in November. 
The study published Monday con- uh, con- conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute reveals that Generation Z adults identify as Democrats, then mil- uh, identify as Democrats, then millennials, generation, generation Xers or baby boomers. Axios reports they are less likely than older generations to join an established religion, far more likely to identify as LGBTQ, and generally are less likely to be Republican, which is something that has terrified the Republicans. A plurality of more than one in three identify as Democrats. The study shows just 21% identify as Republicans. This is, by the way, this is the latest poll. This is why when they say Donald Trump is leading by 20% with Generation Z, bull crud. How about I say it like that? No. They, 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 as like a, my, my, my son, when he went through high school, he's now getting ready to graduate college. When his son went, when he went through high school, there was a Republican club there, but it, I don't even think the school has one anymore just because no one wants to be part of it. Um, uh, ten, three in ten I'd, and identify as independents. So Republicans now are well behind Democrats and independents within Generation Z. 72% of Generation Z adults identify as straight, uh, but you have uh, you know, ten per, uh, nine out of ten identify as straight. Uh, 5% is bisexual, um, 9 out of 10 Americans identify as straight, 5% is bisexual, 3% is gay or lesbian, 2% is something else. 72% of Generation Z adults, a much smaller amount, identify as straight. Large difference, 15% say they're bisexual, 5% gay or lesbian, 8% say something else. So it's definitely changing. One quick more final point on this when I do come on back. 952-946-6205, it's the Matt McNeil Show. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Good to be with you today. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205, and Cliff Schechter coming up here in just a moment. So the one thing I want to just finish up here with Generation Z before I get into one other story out of Alabama, sweet Jesus. Um, the Republicans starting in 2020, remember when they started saying, it's like, we should, why are we allowing these people to vote? If they're going to vote Democrat, we should raise the voting age. This was all of a sudden they, 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 were, they were trying to come up with new ways they could basically remove Generation Z from the ranks because the Republicans are in trouble. The, their best voting block right now is the boomers, and they're unfortunately, sadly enough, they're passing away now. And so you got Generation X, which, you know, come on, man, really? And which is probably the most Generation X thing I could possibly say. Come on, man, really? All right, no. Uh, millennials they do better with, but then comes this, this as those numbers state. I mean, they're only pulling about a fifth of Generation Z as Republicans. And they're just not resonating. Republicans started about a year ago really pushing this, you know what you should do? Don't vote for either. Send a message at the ballot box by not voting. Uh-huh. That's what they did. And this is the same exact thing they did back in 2016 to convince people there's no difference between the two of them. Okay, Joe Biden, as I have said before, is an Arby's beef and cheddar. Not exactly the sandwich most of us want, but you know what? It's still food. Donald Trump is an actual crap sandwich. Feces between two slices of bread. And that's inedible. 
the Nazi cosplayer versus Joe Biden. Come on, man. This isn't, they have to trick Generation Z into staying home. And they are spending millions of dollars to try to do this through influencers, through ad campaigns. And you just have to, you see a Generation Zer, you just, it's not going to take much prodding because they're active. And you just say, you know what? There's more on the line here than whatever issue you don't like Joe Biden for. There's far more on the line. And we, we, we made a mistake in 2016. We cannot do that again. You have to make sure we get that Generation Z vote out because that is, that's basically, you know, Trump's kryptonite. But by saying that implies he's somehow a superhero. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's, <laughs> it's Trump's mustard because he only likes ketchup. And I think mustard would stop him in his tracks. With mustard, oh, God, that's my weakness. Where are you, good Captain Ketchup? Especially the Dijon mustard. It's stinky. I just realized he probably does call it Captain Ketchup. <laughs> Hello, Ketchup. I love you. 952-946-6205. Changing subjects dramatically. In 1996, a jury recommended 11 to 1 that Kenneth Smart be, excuse me, Kenneth Smith be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for his role in a murder for hire plot. The judge overruled the jury, the judge did, and imposed a death sentence, a practice that no longer is legal. Now, nearly three decades later, the state of Alabama plans to use Smith as a test subject for a new execution method, death by inhaling nitrogen, nitrogen gas. Now, I want to make sure I, I, I don't bury the lead. He's a human guinea pig. He's a human guinea pig. Once again, the people that keep talking about how life is sacred can't tell you how much they love the death penalty. And here is a case where the jury themselves said he shouldn't be executed. One man said, nope, I disagree, kill him. And the state of Alabama is so determined to murder this guy which it is. I mean, that is. I mean, you want to. You want. Well, it's not murder if it's punishment. No, you're murdering him. You're you're you wrap it up in a bow, but you're murdering him. You're just doing it under the auspices of the government. That's in in the judicial system. That's what you're doing. It's it's you're you've decided to kill this guy. You could lock him up for life. You decided to kill him, and you're so determined to do it that you're going to use him like a. We we have laws in this country that prevent animals from being used in some cases like this. Not as many. We have some work to do on that, that's for sure. But you're using this person as a human guinea pig. The state's decision to execute Smith by nitrogen hypoxia on Thursday, forcing him to breathe only nitrogen through a mask while depriving him of oxygen, comes after a failed attempt to kill him by lethal injection in November 2022. Although Alabama is one of three states that has authorized executions using nitrogen gas, no state or federal government has actually carried out such an execution. Alabama switched its planned killing method in Smith's case after he fought in court to block the state from attempting to kill him through lethal injection. In addition to Smith, Alabama has failed to kill two other people it tried to execute with lethal injection in recent years. A fourth lethal injection execution, the killing took more than three hours. Even in lethal ejection executions with no observable problems, autopsies of the disease now show signs of pulmonary edema, a condition where lungs fill with fluid and cause the painful sensation of suffocating or drowning. 
So, yeah, really humane. And by the way, Jesus not on board. Nope, not at all. Despite the clear problems with lethal injection executions, there is no evidence that executions using nitrogen would be any more humane. So this is the problem. A botched nitrogen execution could lead to slow, painful death by asphyxiation or leave the individual alive but in persistent vegetative state, according to medical experts. They don't know. The state of Alabama doesn't know what's going to happen here. And they could end up leaving this guy alive, but in a vegetative state for the rest of their life. Well, until they find another way to try to execute him. They've already tortured him once before with attempt. Because I want to make sure you understand what they're doing. They're taking this guy on death row to the execution chamber, and they've already botched it. They've already botched it multiple times. And now all of a sudden you're going to go in with an un, unknown, untested method because their desire to kill this guy overrides any level of humanity or decency they have left. So they're desperately trying to find some way that they can kill him, and they might not even kill him. This guy could just be left in a vegetative state. And then they're sitting there saying, oh, what do we do now? You know, I, I wouldn't put it past Alabama to just tie him to the back of a pickup truck and drag him until he was just a stump. But at the same time, this is the whole argument you say is, well, they were part of a murder plan, murder for hire plan. We're doing this better. It's not murder, Matt. It's just punishment. No, at this point, what the state of Alabama is doing to this guy sounds worse than what he tried to do outside of the prison because you guys just are so damn determined to regardless of whether it's torture or not, kill this guy. And at no point do you look even back on the fact that the jury said, no, don't execute this guy, just put him in jail for the rest of his life. And say, okay, you know what, good enough. We tried to kill him, it did not work, you're going to stay in jail for the rest of your life. Nope. We have an obsolete, they've got, an, they've got a, 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 you know, they're, they're aroused by this idea that they basically can try to murder this guy any way possible. And what... What happens if he is left in a vegetative state? It just, once again, the South at times is one of the most backwards places in the entire globe. We'll take a break. Cliff Schechter, when we come on back, it's the Matt McNeil Show. Good evening to our friends in Chicago, WCPT 820, and on the mothership. Oh, I do, and, and I am one big mother. Uh, AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It is the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Uh, Cliff Schechter going to join us here in just a few moments because it is the New Hampshire primary today. And it is, it's going to be interesting to see exactly where... Um, Nikki Haley finishes because she's not going to win it. I, I, I just, I mean, if she does, uh, this race is that Republican race is far from over. If if Nikki Haley somehow does pull off a win there, this race is not over and it's not going to be over for a while. Cliff uh, is going to talk about. We'll talk to Cliff a little bit about that. Um, I'm also I, th- this is the part which I mean we talked with Matt Robeson about this and he I think his point was great. Watch that, that when when Dean Phillips, because once again, Joe Biden's not on the ballot 
in New Hampshire. He's just not. It was, he was excluded. Dean Phillips is. Now, there is a writing campaign for the president. But it is it's it's going you're going to end up getting a, a pretty good showing for Dean Phillips just because he's on the ballot and the other Democrats are not. I can't wait for the national media to sit there and and argue and insist that that oh look D- Dean Phillips is showing a massive problem. Democrats got a huge problem. Uh, that's going to be kind of the way it goes. And 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 you can already see that cab coming. It's like it's like what I pointed out earlier with the generation thing. It's 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 just generation Bre- v, you know generation Z breaks for the Democrats consistently. Great, but sh- will they do it again? You know, it's always got to be this fear copy. It's always got to be this this you know. Let's make sure we before you get to a point where you think as a Democrat you've got a sunny day going on. Realize it's it's that's not necessarily the case. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. And by the way, I do have. <laughs> okay, so sadly, sadly, I want to be very, very clear. Sadly, the former first lady Melania Trump had to um, had to you know lost her mother and. Uh, they had a funeral for her very recently here, and yeah, that's that's you know obviously it should be the case. You're you're thinking about this if you're uh, if you're Trump, your 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 spouse somehow has lost or not somehow has lost their has lost your their uh, their partner, and uh, is is you know mourning is feeling bad. Donald Trump today, a few days after Melania buries her mother. After taking a photo with a young man, Trump couldn't help but comment on his mother's looks. You got a good-looking mom, the former president said, in laughter from his supporters. Once again, this is a few days after his wife buried her mother, and he's flirting with women on the campaign trail. Cliff, we got Cliff now? Let's bring him on in. Cliff Schechter is, uh, of course, if you're not following the Blue Amp YouTube channel, you're, can I ju- you're just wrong, for goodness sakes. You're just oh. wrong. C. Schechter. C. Schechter at YouTube. Fantastic content. A lot of stuff there. Cliff is kind enough to join us today with his dipping sauce of maple syrup to talk about New Hampshire and how he thinks it's going to go. Hey, Cliff. Hey, man, how are you? I'm doing well, man. You know, do we take anything from that one town going completely for Nikki Haley last night? Or is that just, you, you know, know, that's Dixville a quirk. Not. Yeah. Uh, my gosh. It's, a, it's like one of those little sort of historical kind of, um, you know, I remember they played it up in the West Wing. One of those like historical, I'm, I'm not finding the right words, but antiquated kind of, they get to vote first. And, you know, that predicts the outcome and everybody has fun and. I, I like a lot of that stuff. I mean, as a fan of, you know, democracy, I just feel like right now maybe it's not the most, the best moment for us <laughs> to be sitting there, you know, with romanticizing well, about if- these kinds of things. But in any case, no, I don't think Nikki Haley, you know, she got six votes. Good for her. It's a good start. She started off six nothing. Uh, but uh, by all accounts, it looks like she'll, she's not going to do very well. And, Every politician in South Carolina reminding you that if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Um, she appointed, you know, yeah, Tim Scott, who's now, I think, off spending time with his girlfriend in Niagara Falls. Um, and she appointed him and he uh, endorsed Trump and she defended Nancy Mace against a Trump 
pushed uh, uh, opponent last election cycle because Nancy Mace had actually had a moment of honesty right after January 6th before she snapped back to the snake she is. And she, of course, is the snake she is. And she endorsed uh, Trump. I just they're they are pathetic DeSantis and Rubio who wants to call them a con artist. I mean, I've never seen such a collection of slobbering losers of, of, of lack of spine of just pathetic, cringe creatures who just power. That's it. Nothing else matters to these people. They're just they could, they will debase themselves for anyone. And so. In a way, Nikki Haley, just like so many other Republicans who have debased themselves fully, are getting a taste of their own medicine because they're doing to Nikki Haley what she did when she agreed to sign on and support Trump after she initially said she couldn't way back after the the that uh, Hollywood, you know, uh, Access Hollywood video came out uh, of his famous infamous comment that I won't say here and get you fined. Um, and she she supported him and she accepted the U.N. role and helped prop him up. And guess what? This is the thing she gets now. He's he's busy pulling an Obama on her and questioning her authenticity of her birth certificate or at least her citizenship, yeah. which would be a classic Trump move. And you don't think that's going to pick up in South Carolina? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You know, like they went after McCain down there. Uh, by the way, yep. if you if you if you do want to get a Dixville notch, that's extra. You got to pay for that. Just FYI. Uh, the nicely done. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Look uh, at you pushing the boundaries of the Federal Communications Commission. Well, it wasn't the first. I couldn't remember the name of the town. I don't even want to re- remind everyone what the first name I said of that town was. But it wasn't. Co- it was. It, it wasn't cool. It just was not cool. All right. So you just brought something up here, though. I want to talk about Tim Scott, Nancy Mace. I'm sure most of the other South Carolina Republicans are going to get behind uh, Donald Trump. Um, is this a sign that I mean? I mean, we, we're trying to gauge, and we'll know a lot more later on tonight. But I, I think this is a sign that Trump himself is clearly concerned about how North New Hampshire is going to go, and how if if this goes as you know badly, if if Nikki is close, he needs to get everyone on board now. Should we take it as that the fact that he's getting every South Carolina Republican on board with his campaign? I, I mean, I think so. I mean, it, it would be normal procedure. It's what you would do. If you're running, but he's not a normal candidate. Uh, so my sense is he's probably he's probably nervous and probably calling in all of those sort of favors or really more like threatening people yes. to get them to, yes. to support him and saying, you know, he'll support primary opponents and all these kinds of things. Uh, I mean, again, good practice would be to line up endorsements ahead of primaries as best you can. But. I think in his case, he doesn't do anything the way normal. So he maybe did the right thing for the wrong reasons is the best way to put it. Yeah. You know, he's lined up those endorsements, which he should. But I think he, he is doing it from a place of fear because the, the popular governor, New Hampshire, Sununu, got behind Nikki Haley. Yep. I mean, again, it's not going to do an ounce of good. You know what I mean? Uh, but I, I do think she's going to get, especially with DeSantis, that – I mean, I have a hard time when I when we start talking about the pathetic creatures of the Republican Party, because every time we come up with one like a Rubio or a Ted Cruz, who I think is just the just the slimiest, most pathetic thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, another one comes along and maybe has them beaten or at least tied. And so, of course, DeSantis, who wasn't going to back down, I think that was his slogan, won't back down, you know, back down uh, and immediately then endorsed Trump after Trump insulted him called him a meatball, <laughs> among other things. Uh, had all sorts of names for him. And I think even when they asked Trump how he felt about his endorsement, he took a, sh- a shot at Ron DeSantis after he endorsed him. So, yeah. I mean, 
again, I, to, to want power as badly as these people do, I just I can't imagine that. Like, I, I guess you got to be a different person to imagine the <clears throat> level of self-debasement they're willing to go through. I, I, I couldn't ever do that. I couldn't. If someone was out there insulting my wife because he, he insulted DeSantis's wife, he, you know, like he did with Cruz's wife and, yep. you know, and these things. And yet these guys, they put their tail between their leg. I mean, it's it, it really is kind of one of those things that I think this is a major difference between Republicans when you and I were growing up in like the 80s and 90s, especially early 90s. Republicans would never have tolerated this. You don't talk to other people like this. And today yeah. it's just, you know, you you basically, you know, have to go through the initiation once again if basically trump you know starts you know railing on you you basically have to accept it and say i thought it was a good insult against my own wife you know that sort of thing right um you know i mean i mean this may be too much of a generalization but i think especially living here and i mean the 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 sort of the old republican party was one of what conservatism actually means and you can disagree with it and i disagree with a whole lot of it but sort of Traditionalism and caution, and they they you know so they were very hesitant to do anything, especially for example a universal health care plan and that kind of thing. And all of that came from sort of Midwest caution, isolationism, that kind of thing, right? As defined by the Taft family from here would be a great example. Uh, you, you sort of had three distinct parties. You had that. You had the Northern Democratic Party, and then you had the Southern Democratic Party, which were where all the, the insane people were. Uh, who were who were the racists, frankly, mm-hmm. and they would you know so they get votes of some Northerners and some things they join on on economic proposals, um, uh, because also because that was sort of the culture of the day was that was a very much a government intervention and that kind of thing, and, and once they became the base of the Republican Party, this is the kind of sort of sleaze, and I'm not saying about the South overall, but Southern politics, uh, especially Southern right wing politics, racist politics, sexist has had a lot of this. And I think that became the core central nature. When when Bob Michael, this moderate conservative, had been the head of the House, who's a perfect sort of embodiment of old Republicanism from Illinois, gets displaced by Newt Gingrich of the three wives, you know, of the, hi, I'm dumping my wife in the hospital with cancer for the new one. And one of them was a teacher of his, and he was a student. And one of, you know, there's the one that right now that looks like she's a, she's a hostage. I, I, I don't mean that in the way of, of course, uh, Elise Stefanik. In other words, she didn't go break in on January 6th and then become a hostage. But I, I do mean like, I, like what's her face? Callista? Who like, yeah, Callista. Who looks like she actually doesn't close her eyes ever. I, I, I mean, in any case, I'm being mean, but I don't care. It's Newt Gingrich and he's a horrible human being. And he brought that sort of style. The, the, they had the old cautious Bob Michael style and then you got Newt Gingrich. Yeah. Sleazy, you know, teaching them how to attack and how to win elections at any cost and all that. And, and that, that changed that party. And Mitch McConnell eventually from Kentucky. And it just, the, the, the party's, you know, center, it, it, you know, it, it, it comes from a whole different place now. We, a place I would argue is hell, but okay. <laughs> we got about a little more than two minutes here, but I, I want to ask you about what, before we got to get to break it, but I want to ask you about what's the margin for you? Where, where if, if Haley is above, is above this amount of the vote, that this becomes a much harder process for Trump as they go forward? Or at what point does she become irrelevant? And you ask the question, why is she going to go to South Carolina? I mean, certainly if she were to break 30 percent, yeah. that would say something. And certainly if she were to come within a dozen points, 15, eh, I'd say more like a dozen. That would be, you know, those would be. A dozen I, would I be think, something. A dozen would be something. Yes. I think those are wins for her. Oh, yeah. But again, is it enough? 
you brought it up. I wrote a book on John McCain. I know quite well. I researched the depths of what they did to him in in uh, South Carolina, the Lee Atwater uh, machine, which is still going there. What they did to him, the you know the black love child and other things that they had to say about him when he was captured that he'd become a Manchurian candidate. Ironic because that's Trump. You know, so I mean, they will. It doesn't matter that she's been governor there twice. What they will turn her into down there, um, especially now with they didn't used to have the ability to do it with social media and certain other tools they have today to reach people through Facebook privately and whatever. I can't even imagine what they're going to turn her into. So I don't think she has much of a chance. I was just down there. I was just down there last weekend or a week ago. And, um, and I can tell you right now, she still does have a lot of popularity in that state. So, I mean, it's, it's for for, on the the national level. I very much could be wrong. It would be normal for me. Well, so. well, no, what I'm saying is I think that the like Tim Scott's and, and Nancy Mace's, they don't have a problem doing this on the national front, but I think they're going to be very much tiptoeing with the local media down there. No, I mean, I think local media, she's popular. Look, she, she kind of plays off that image. She's likable in person. And, and even when she's saying horrible policies like banning abortion after six weeks, she does it with a smile. She doesn't, I mean, she's not a nasty person. So, yeah, I do think she's sort of looked as a conciliatory figure, but we'll yeah. see. Uh, Cliff Schechter, kind enough to join us. When we come on back, we'll talk about the Democratic side and this, the joke that is no labels. We'll get to that as well. Cliff Schechter joining us right here on The Matt McNeil Show. It is the Matt McNeil Show. Cliff Schechter, kind enough to join us. And once again, the Blue Am channel on YouTube. It's YouTube backslash C Schechter. I'll link to all of it a little bit later on on the social medias. Find Cliff there. It's quality stuff. And, I mean, it's content. You're putting out a ton of content out there, by the way. Nicely done. Yeah, we're getting some we were getting some good stuff out there. Matt had an interview today. Matt Robeson, a different Matt than you, but mm-hmm. you know him. Yep. You guys do the show's. Now, uh, he had an interview today with uh, Chris Matthews, which was kind of interesting, in, cool. in Manchester, he and Paul. So, uh, we, yeah, we, we, I've been putting out at least one, if not two a day. We're, we're, we're upping. We're moving to that next level because, finally, I have stuff that works. Look, there's lights and there's a, a microphone. And, and I'm not like, you know, <laughs> I don't have the camera coming from up here up into my my. <laughs> my gullet right there so you can all really check out the adam's apple so you know that's that's a fine improvement for me speaking of gullets and adam apples dean phillips he is my house rep he is mine and i have no idea i've not seen him for a while he's running around new hampshire now he's going to do well uh because he's on the ballot and joe biden isn't although well we uh we we talked about how there is a big writing campaign for joe biden right now uh he's basically go ahead no, and, and there's a big reason Biden isn't, because we decided <laughs> that two ninety-eight point nine percent white states, I may be exaggerating, but only by a hair, uh, that have that are smaller should really I mean, the way our whole system is run is insane and, and just incredibly stupid. And at least the Democratic Party took a you know a step towards rectifying that. Maybe the Electoral College next. But in any mm-hmm. case, that's the reason he's not on, you know, he, he wasn't there, he's not running there for well, very good reason. 
Phillips has been all over the place this week. He talked about how he's trying to appeal to Bernie Sanders supporters. The other day he talked about how he would love to be on a no labels ticket with Ramaswamy of all people for God's sakes, pick a lane, dude. But you know, he's, he's basically, it's this kind of blackmail mentality. You'd better vote for me or else I'm going to leave and I'm going to take my followers with me, which I don't know if it's there. You know, your first, your thoughts outside of the district of on Dean Phillips right now. Well, most of them I can't share on your uh, <laughs> on your show, lest that you and I be fine. But what what a dork! Can I say what? A, can I, I, I've heard you say this before. What an unbelievable jackass! What a jackass! Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, what do, what is wrong with this guy? Honestly, he had a promising congressional career. He was one of the leaders, I believe, of his class when he was elected. Which yes. was it? 2018, 2020. Could have risen up in the ranks very much, uh, very easily there. Could have perhaps at some point run for a Senate seat or governor or something. I mean, did somebody get to this guy? Is this, I mean, and I don't think financially they could have because what? His family made $70 million in booze. I mean, give me the $70 million in booze money and see if I run in a primary or if I'm off on an island somewhere holding little glasses with small umbrellas coming out of them. What is... I don't even understand the need to do this. And so I don't know what the hell his problem is, but I've got nothing but contempt for him because it's it's just simple and straightforward. Well, and, and, and go ahead. Well, Sorry. and, and your, your point is right. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's in that Christian cinema. I mean, Manchin was there to protect his daughter and her profit margins on that pharmaceutical stuff. But I mean, they're, they're, don't forget the mining interest. Exactly. Uh, half a million dollars he makes a year in passive income they basically there seems to be this element trying to basically cherry pick enough democrats to say okay you're under our control and you're going to be our ace in the hole if we need someone to disrupt the democratic platform and these guys seem to be willing to do it going to the no labels i mean he's not going to win joe biden's going to be the nominee for the democrats i mean that's just that but he's no question yeah exactly but i mean at the same time he wants to go to this i mean i think he thinks we're a fool because there's no way on the planet no labels is going to take anyone but a Republican on the top of that ticket. And it's not – if you're talking about Ramaswamy and DeSantis, that's not an independent ticket. That's just a Republican two ticket. That's all it is. I mean you mean Ramaswamy and Dean Phillips or – Ramaswamy – Dean Phillips said he would, he would want to be on a ticket with Ramaswamy. And I said, OK, that guy's near freaking libertarian, dude. You can't – that's not independent – and you trying to say that's middle of the road is so insultive and just wrong. I mean, it just clearly shows I mean, that this forget, is he's he's a populist right winger. Well, forget like liber. I mean, he he's one of the ones who wants to pull out of uh, you know stop supporting Ukraine. He's a Putinite. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not even he's not even one of the the Republicans. At least a Romney or, or Nikki Haley or Chris Christie or some of the ones that at least know who our allies are in the world. If they're wrong about ninety percent of everything else. Uh, I mean, he, he wants to, to go and help Putin. He wants to he, he's the one he's out there with conspiracy theories that January 6th was an inside job. I, there are certain points in the last couple of weeks where he was out trumping Trump. I mean, I did a video at our channel. My theory is the whole time that he's just he's been there uh, as a Peter Thiel or as a uh, and I'll say allegedly because I don't have proof of this. But I mean, he, he basically was a guy who could get up on stage so Trump didn't have to, and Trump didn't have to show how degraded his mind is, which we're all seeing now. And and uh, Ramaswamy could get up and defend all of Trump's positions, everything Trump believes, all this populist garbage, right-wing nuttery, isolationism, the whole rest of it. 
and and really and even Trump the person could def- as he did defended him boldly and then shockingly endorsed him the second he got out. I mean, I've I've, I've been suspicious a long time. Peter Thiel backed Trump, the, the billionaire we're talking about, lunatic, seems like a James Bond villain. He backed J.D. Vance here in Ohio, which makes me sick to my stunk. He backed Blake Masters in Arizona, who lost, thankfully. But he's trying to amass power everywhere. Mm-hmm. He's trying to buy influence and amass power and do what these guys do. So, I mean, I don't believe – and he's got, of course, has numerous ties to Putin. I don't think for a second that Ramaswamy is anything close to – I mean – you're going to do something, you'd, you'd run with like a Romney or somebody like that. And yeah. It would still be terrible, but at least you'd be not lying about who they are. Well, and I think it's just there clearly seems to be this element to try to convince us that this is middle of the road. And it's not. And it's just no. it's and, it, and right. Frankly, the good news is I don't know a lot of Democrats who are thinking about going over to there. I think most of them are staying, you know, really going, going to stay put with Biden. I don't, I don't think almost any Democrats would vote for it. Yeah. it. Its job is they're hemorrhaging Republicans. You saw that 43 uh, percent of Nikki Haley's voters in uh, Iowa, which is pretty insane, considering that the most hardcore evangelicals are the ones who turn out for those caucuses. Because you're not just voting. You're hanging out there for hours. Right. Mm-hmm. And giving this. And 43 percent of them said they would vote for Biden over Trump because of how horrible Trump is. Yep. So I think no labels is your way of, of making sure that all these sort of, you know, anybody who's a light Republican or independents don't go swarming to Biden and, and you don't get a massive win with Cl- Biden over Trump. Cliff Schechter, I'll link to him a little bit later on. Cliff, thank you very much. Fantastic today. Uh, Chicago, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Minneapolis, St. Paul, hour two up next. Hour number two of the show here on your let's see, Tuesday. That's right. Uh, Matt and Brett and Patrick, we're all here today. We've got uh, Patrick Cooligan coming up here in just a moment. And then Don Carr is going to join us. He's a brand new author. He's got a book. He's going to be doing an event this evening in town here. We'll talk to him coming up here a little bit later on. Uh, so one quick thing. I had two people ask me for clarification say, well, Matt, if you would not have voted for Maurer to go in the Hall of Fame, because they'll announce the Hall of Fame uh, inductees tonight. And I think that it, Maurer's going to go in. And we talked about it, you know, Patrick and I talked about it a little bit after the show yesterday. It's two things. It's one is that they love the idea of the hometown kid playing for the hometown team and never playing for anyone else. And that's because that's that old style baseball mentality. And they love that sort of stuff. The other thing is that and, and Dan Patrick, the sportscaster, made the point. He says there is not a single person you can say definitively did not do any kind of performance enhancing drugs. But I can look at a guy like Greg Gagne. <laughs> he played for the Twins. And, you know what? Greg Gagne wasn't taking performance enhancing drugs. Dude, was, <laughs> he was like 80 pounds. You know, he wasn't. Um, Joe Maurer, his physique, his style, none of it implies that he, he doesn't look like a Conseco. He doesn't look like a Sammy Sosa or a Mark McGuire with, you know, in veins out of their neck, the Barry Bonds guys. He didn't. I can't say, you know, no one can say definitively one way or the other. It's clear I don't think he, he was taking any kind of performance-enhancing drugs, and the reality is is they're still looking to kind of find people that they can say, yeah, see, not this guy. Imagine if he did take performance-enhancing drugs, how much that would have helped the Twins back in the uh, okay. days of yeah. losing to the Yankees. Maybe that <laughs> would have given That's us the That's not the lesson I was trying to hope yeah. we got here. Why aren't we juicing up more of our players here? Well, you know, they're doing it. Why plug them on in. Let's get them rolling. Uh, uh, one other quick sports thing. Iowa fan is the equivalent of the Green Bay Packers fans in college. Dear Lord, did you see this idiot from Iowa Gymnastics 
who yesterday posted a thing saying, uh, "What is it? The the, the um, it's it's a gym it's a gymnast um, that was uh, that wasn't a fair catch." Because they're still talking about the play in the Iowa game, the Minnesota Iowa game, where the guy made a rule book definition of fair catch. You wave your arm, you wave your arm, and it's for two reasons: one, you don't want the the guy to get creamed, but as two is you've waved off everyone to get away from the ball, meaning Minnesota doesn't feel like the play is active anymore. It's a rule book definition. You just can't wave an arm, and this guy did. An Iowa fan is still trying to make fetch happen. It is it just, they are, I mean, th- these are the same people I don't know if you saw after the whole thing with Caitlin Clark at Ohio State, I think it was. Ohio State beat them in basketball, and she ran into a fan and you know, did a pirouette as she went to the floor. And they're like, how dare people storm other people's courts? Dude, you guys stormed the old Metrodome field tore down the goalposts, and then tried to walk through through revolving doors because you're apparently not the smartest kids I've ever seen in my life. Don't talk to me about oh, how they pay people out of line and how dare anyone do this. It's just, Iowa fan is the Green Bay Packer fans of college. They're just, you know, they're just, they've got a chip on their shoulder constantly. Well, I don't understand what the difference is because their offense couldn't score. They would have still lost to Michigan, whatever, you know, with like 35 to nothing. And then Big Ten championship game, it wouldn't have made a difference. Because they're in freaking Iowa and they already have an inferiority complex. I'm I'm sorry. Someone's got to be honest here, okay? I can tell someone was an Iowa State broadcaster. (laughs) I dealt with these guys down at Iowa State. It was amazing. I have never seen a bunch of whiners, and here it is months later, and a gymnast says, it wasn't a fair catch. Shut up. You lost fair and square. The NCAA came out and said, that's that's actually what the rule book says. You can't wave your arm like that. <laughs> I actually, can you imagine what Iowa fan would be like if, say, this guy, the play played out the same way, and he picked up the ball and a gopher defender plowed him over and just they had to take him out in a stretcher the same exact iowa fan would be sitting here going that was clearly a fair catch and that was just a cheap shot by minnesota stop stop you're pathetic you're pathetic all right are you ready for it patrick are you ready for this here we go i am ready we got the names for the plows the the voting starts today for the new plows i already can tell you two of these are going to happen Two of these are going to happen. I guarantee it. Here's the names. Did we go through the names before? I don't think. I think some of the names came in, but I don't know. I think we did some submissions. Maybe yeah, I don't in think December. the names. Yeah. Here's the. Here's your voting list. It's fifty. Okay, ready. A little salty. A plow named Sue. Aaron Burr, sir. Alice Scooper. Barbie's dream plow. That's going to be one of them. Barbie's dream plow is going to be one of them for sure. Uh, Beauty and the Blade because it's I, I, because ice. Said snow. Oh, That's God. a stretch. Yeah, below zero hero, best in snow. Uh, Beyonce, uh, that might have it. That might be might be there. Blizzard Buster, Blizzard Wizard, can't snow me down. Clark W. Blizzwald, dashing through the snow. Dolly Plowton, don't flurry, be happy. Every day I'm shoveling. Fast and fl- uh, flurious. Flake Superior, flake it off. 
Frosty the, the snowplow, highways, Highway Hercules, I came, I thaw, I conquered, just scraping by. Lady Slippery, Land of 10,000 Snows, weak. La Plow de Nord, Make Snow Be Gone, Minnesota Nice, Miracle on Ice, Oh, for Sleet's Sake, Oh, Snow You Didn't, Orange You Glad to See Me, Plower Power, Scrape, Rattle, and Roll, Shiver Me Blizzards, Skull Plow, please, Snowmageddon, Snowminator, uh, with MN, Snowminator, Snow White and the Seven Drifts, Star of the North, Storm Rider, Sweet Child O'Brien, Taylor Drift, that's going to be in there. Yes. Taylor Drift is going to happen. A, a great MN plow together. I'm going to try to say this. Wea uh, Ponyete, uh, the Dakota word for snow plow. Uh, who let the plows out? You're killing me squalls. So I, I, I think the, the Barbie's dream plow is going to be there. I think, I think Taylor Drift is, come on. That's because we all hope she shows up to say hi to the plow. <laughs> That's the Instagram post right there. Oh my God, she's here, she's here, she's here. Look how crazy. The Bills fans going nuts over her in their stadium with her wearing Chiefs gear. Yeah, we all want her to show up here. Any of those names come to you that say, you know what? That sounds pretty good. I don't think it'll win, but I like Aaron Burr. Sir? Uh, I kind of like that one. Aaron Burr, okay. I don't think it will win either. No, I don't think it will either, no. Some of these are kind of weak. Um, I just it's and nothing well, like the Clark Griswold reference was Clark W. Griswold. Not a Griswold, great one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some of these they're they're running out of ideas. It seems. Well, you know, flake it off. I think flake it off has got a decent chance to make it too. It's a few years too late on that though. Well, I think but it's they still Tay Tay. Like, yeah, Tay Tay. <laughs> uh, fast and flurious. Come on, man. You want a few years too old here? Yeah. yeah All yeah. right. Flurious X. Um, land of ten thousand snows. Yeah, a lot of these are not as as good, and I don't want to necessarily just be all the Dolly Partons and the, this. But scrape, rattle, and roll—that's not bad. Um, oh snow! It, it, the the wordplay, the oh for sleet's sake, oh snow you didn't. Oh come on! <laughs> no one wants to drive that either. If you're the driver, what are you driving today? <laughs> oh snow you didn't. Oh, uh, sweet child O'Brien. Maybe. I, I, I guess you're killing me squalls, which is off the, the meme, uh, you're killing me smalls, right? Yeah, that's from Sandlot. Yeah, yeah so you're killing me smalls. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that's, that might have a chance there. Every day I'm shoveling. I uh, hope that, that one, that, no. That's a, pop, that's, a, that's a pop reference that's a little dated. Dashing through the snow. Eh, you know, do we really want Christmas now? I don't think so. Um, will, do we, will we even freaking have snow? It's going to be 50 degrees yeah. next week. <laughs> we, 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 why don't we just name the, you know, I guess the, the utility trucks at this point. <laughs> I shouldn't give. What am I doing? What yeah, am I happen, doing? Yeah. I cannot. I can, electric. Oh, my God. What am Electricity I theme names we could all come up with. Yeah. <laughs> electric Avenue. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, shock to the heart. Oh, God, no. What am I doing? Shock to the heart. And obviously that song's got to be blasting through the loudspeakers whenever it's driving. If you down. name yeah. it after a song, yeah, yeah. it's got to be that song's got to play through the speakers everywhere you go. It's just, it's only fair. 
Uh, the, you can go to the DNR's website. I'll put a link out to it. You can go vote for your favorite, and we'll all just live with the consequences. Brett, uh, what do we have with you and Cooligan today? Yeah, today we are going to be talking about Patrick Kulikan's column talking about this wage theft case that's happened yeah. in central Minnesota and the fact that, as you've mentioned many times, we have two sets of judicial systems here in this country, one for the rich people and one for everyone else. So his column will highlight that. Plus, we'll also talk about some uh, school data showing that, uh, of course, uh, many whiter and more suburban schools are sending kids to college at a higher rate than other schools. And Pete Stauber taking credit for a bill that he voted against and getting called out on that. Well, yeah, and, and he's and he's rightfully getting called out well, on that. Well, he technically said he advocated for the bridge. He didn't vote for it, so maybe a technicality. You cannot <laughs> claim to take credit for a project you openly voted against, you moron. I mean, that's just... Yeah. That's the technical... Well, I didn't say I voted for it. I advocated for it. Well, I think what you do is... I mean, if there isn't a campaign right now to put billboards across the Minnesota 8th saying, Pete Stauber did not vote against building the Blatnick Bridge. I mean, that should just be... That's the yeah. entire thing. Pete Stauber voted against building the Batonic Bridge. Done. Voted against those airports, too, that he tried to take credit for. So uh, it's Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer with Brett right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And here on this Tuesday, we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. That's Patrick Kulikan, as we are going to be chatting about some of the stories that they have been working on over at the Reformer. And today, we are going to be talking a little bit more about this wage theft case in central Minnesota, since Patrick wrote a column about, well, why we need to be paying a little bit more attention to this and why we do largely have two sets of justice systems here in the United States. We will also be talking about Pete Stauber, no surprise here, taking credit for a bill that he voted against. And then finally, we'll cap off the interview talking about how whiter, richer high schools in the Twin Cities area end up sending more students to college than other schools in the state. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about your column titled, Wage Theft Case is a Test of Whether We Have Two Justice Systems in America. And this has to do with, well, over the past three years, these two dairy farmers, Keith Schaefer and his daughter, Megan Hill, who are alleged to have stolen at least $3 million from hundreds of their workers at 18 facilities across central Minnesota. That's according to a lawsuit from Attorney General Keith Ellison, where he alleges they shaved about 12 to 32 hours off workers' paychecks every two weeks, then also refused to pay workers for their first and last weeks of work, and unlawfully deducted rent from their wages for beds in barns, garages, and other structures that really were not suitable for human habitation. In fact, you can see some of the photos of these over at minnesotareformer.com. Ellison says it's the largest wage theft case in his office, his office's history at $3 million. But as you write about, uh, we still haven't exactly been seeing the type of investigation you might expect out of a movie where we have agents swarming these facilities looking for evidence. That largely hasn't happened yet. Why exactly do you think we have these two sets of judicial systems, one for, well, largely the wealthy and then one for workers? Yeah, I, I was struck by, um, I mean, the, the facts that are alleged by the Attorney General uh, in here are um, so repugnant um, and so striking, uh, and and yet the the K and and the numbers involved are really significant, three million dollars at least. Um, and we, I don't think we know the full extent of it because the company was um, against uh, was uh, apparently alleged to have destroyed its uh, time cards and other records. Uh, which uh, you would need to collect evidence. 
Uh, and yet the, the story didn't even make the front page of the Star Tribune. And, you know, I think there's, we see this time and again where, uh, whether it's the Sacklers and, uh, the billions that they made, um, from the over prescribing of opioids or, uh, you know, the, the kind of behavior that, uh, we saw on Wall Street and in the mortgage firms leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, uh, this kind of behavior, um, people get away with fines or, uh, they just flat out get away with it. And, um, you know, it is, I, I sort of rack my brain about why, why do we treat these two classes of, um, really antisocial behavior, uh, so differently? Um, because we certainly, if, it, if it's a, a fentanyl addict, uh, who's also dealing to feed his addiction, I mean, and he has got a fair amount on him, he's probably going to go to jail, uh, maybe even prison. Um, if, if you steal something that's worth a thousand dollars or more, that's considered a felony. Um, and yet in this case, um, uh, and I should, um, I should offer this caveat that for all we know, there is this rigorous criminal investigation that's going on right now. We just don't know about it. But, uh, as you said, there was no scene of agents swarming through and scouring for, for evidence. We're not aware of anything like that. Um, so, you feel um, you feel a, a, a catalytic converter, and we're going to put you in jail. Um, but you still, um, this is again just an allegation from the attorney general of the state of Minnesota: three million dollars in wages. Uh, then um, you only have to face at this point uh, apparently civil penalties. Um, and, and I think there is just something deep in the American consciousness uh, that. Uh, I can't really explain it uh, other than that um, it's it's uh, it's just a class issue. Uh, we're talking about uh, wealthy people who are uh, who are committing uh, certain kinds of crimes and poor people who are committing the other kind of crime. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, uh, one kind uh, uh, receives the uh, very steep penalties and consequences, and the other. Uh, doesn't at all. And, um, and so I think it's, it's something that we need to, to think about and ponder, uh, a lot more than we do. Well, you're right a little bit too, kind of comparing the situation to what we saw with Gordon Gecko, of course, back in the Wall Street movie in the 80s as well. And I think part of it too is that we just, you portray the, portray these types of guys who go out and steal money and take advantage of others as capitalist heroes, almost for kind of a lack of a better way of putting it, where you kind of make them look appealing and you say, well, you're that much closer to being in that position too. And I think that kind of plays into the psyche too, where you've just convinced people, well, you could be that person. So you don't want all these protections for workers because you could be that guy. I don't know. I think there's something in that too, because as you said, we, we, we should be making a bigger deal out of this, but we're not largely. Yeah, and I mean that, and people have talked about that. For, uh, the reason why we don't have uh, the kind of um, class politics or class warfare that we see in in, uh, in some other countries, especially in Europe, is because Americans sort of see themselves as one day reaching that apex, and um, and they, you know, the billionaire is just like me, um, and of course it's. Uh, it's fantastical. It's ridiculous. Um, and the reality is uh, we do have a class war in this country. It's just that uh, the rich are winning. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. Uh, One more thing that struck my eye as I was reading through the article, and that's the fact that we do, of course, have one of the toughest laws in Minnesota when it comes to wage theft. But unfortunately, our wage theft law hasn't exactly been used that often. Since 2019, Minnesota has had, of course, one of the strongest anti-wage theft laws in the country, but the law has virtually virtually been unenforced, I should say, as it's only been brought, I believe, just five times over the past five years, and only one person has even been convicted of wage theft, which... It's crazy when you think about that. We're supposed to have one of the toughest laws here in the country, and we've only had one conviction in only four years. Obviously, this case here in central Minnesota could change things, but, uh, yeah, that that just really speaks volumes right there. Yeah, and I think there's more work to do on this because uh, a key problem is that you've got the, the, the county sheriff um, in in these, uh, uh, in, I think, Stearns and Redwood County uh, who pres- uh, ostensibly would be doing an investigation, and, and then it would be a county attorney who would be prosecuting it. Um, honestly, I, I don't think that this is a. I don't think that county ter- uh, uh, county sheriffs have much experience in this kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure that they even have much interest in it. They remember that they are elected officials, and uh, and so I think that's another issue. And I, I do wonder if um, we could just give original jurisdiction uh, to an agency where the attorney general. Uh, that would have uh, we'd be better uh, positioned to investigate and prosecute these kinds of crimes because um, it ought to be a priority. And I'm afraid that um, if you're talking about, a, I'm sure the this local dairy farmer is a person of uh, some influence. Uh, they've got a lot of operations in central Minnesota, and um, and so the question is, is is a, is a county sheriff uh, or or a county attorney going to take them on? Um, like it appears needs to happen in this case. Uh, so I, I think they, they need to keep working on that law um, because uh, wage theft is real. We know it's real in, in, uh, in agriculture and construction and, and some other industries, especially where you have immigrant labor, um, who uh, people who fear that if, if they complain, um, then, then the boss will uh, get them deported or, or what have you. Um, so it's a huge power imbalance between uh, employers and, and, and workers, and, uh, and, and we need to bring some equilibrium to it um, by using law enforcement resources to, to really stamp out this wage theft. Well, I think you just brought up the other key point, too. You can strengthen the law as much as you want over at the state legislature, but if you don't have a local county attorney or a local county sheriff that's going to enforce the law, well, then you have all sorts of problems, too. So that just adds a, another layer to what's happening with this situation where, yeah, even if Keith Ellison and others want to prosecute this case, if the local guys don't, well, we're kind of in a bind. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on now. Again, you can read more about Patrick's column over at MinnesotaReformer.com, MinnesotaReformer.com. I want to talk a little bit more about a federal issue right now, and that's, of course, the infrastructure bill that passed a couple of years ago that you might remember pretty much all Democrats voted for and all Republicans voted against. Now, the reason why we're bringing that up is that the federal government is set to send to send $1 billion to help rebuild the Blatnick Bridge between Duluth and Superior, Wisconsin. Pete Stauber, representative from the 8th District in Minnesota, of course wants to take credit for this bill, even though he voted against the infrastructure bill. So so what are your overall thoughts on uh, Stauber trying to take credit for this bill that he voted against with infrastructure? 
Yeah, I remember this district uh, in northeast Minnesota is represented by um, uh, Democrats. Um, I mean, I think from the New Deal all the way until uh, 21, or excuse me, 2010. Um, and, and Oberstar was a kind of legendary congressman, who, uh, a Democratic con- DFL congressman who, who brought a lot of transportation money, uh, dollars up to that region. And so even though the, the district has really shifted uh, Republican, I think they supported Trump in, in both 16 and 20 by 15 points. Uh, there's still that core, um, um, really uh, strongly supporting uh, certainly these kinds of transportation projects. And uh, by all accounts, the, the Blotnick Bridge needs a, a rebuild. And so I think that uh, Stauber, even though he's basically a down-the-line uh, Republican, he will occasionally make, uh, will will vote against his party, I think trying to create at least somewhat of a distinguishing um, political persona uh, that he's not just a, a typical uh, Republican. But on this one, he votes no, and uh, he says uh, that it's going to uh, drive us uh, towards, uh, I guess what he said at the time in 2020 was, I will not be complicit in paving a destructive and irreversible path toward socialism. And uh, <laughs> people in the district probably think we just want a bridge. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, call it socialist if you want, but it's a, just a bridge. and We need it, and it carries a lot of uh, freight and a lot of cars and trucks. And uh, we need to be rebuilt. And he voted against it. And then he comes around and, uh, you know, the old saying is they uh, they vote no, but they take the dough. And uh, he says it's a huge win. And he was proud to advocate for these funds. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, thousands of people reminded him yesterday on the Internet that uh, you did not advocate for these funds. You voted against it and you came out and called it a, a, a destructive and irreversible path towards socialism. So the whole thing really blew up on him. Um, his post even earned a, a, uh, a reader's note uh, on Twitter um, in which all of his votes against it are listed there. Uh, and uh, he had, I think that thing had been seen uh, when I wrote this last night, 2.3 million people had seen this. Um, and I'm sure it was more today. Uh, and as it happens, uh, Jennifer Schultz, the former uh, uh, state legislator uh, who ran against him two years ago, uh, ran, ran a you know a good solid campaign. But she announced her campaign today, so her timing was impeccable. Uh, the, the governor uh, Tim Walls was with her as she uh, kind of launched her campaign today. President Biden will be uh, at the bridge on Thursday, so it's shaping up to be a pretty rough week for Pete Stauber. Well, on a technicality, I guess he said he advocated for the funding, didn't vote for it. But uh, no, I'm just kidding on that one. But <laughs> advocating right. versus voting, I could see him trying to go with the technicality on that. But I, I, I guess as I look further at him, maybe he's fine. He's found kind of that perfect balance between, well, being a Trump supporter, but not being absolutely on the fringe end where he's always wearing the red hat and appearing with the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and so forth. But he's also not quite in the Tom Emmer camp where he's looking for a position of leadership and therefore could end up angering Donald Trump, as we have seen in the past. Maybe he's kind of found that uh, perfect medium spot for at least this new MAGA version of the Republican Party where he's Trumpy, but not too Trumpy for uh, some of his other uh, some of his other voting base. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's still that strong union uh, presence there. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I think they're going to be supportive of these kinds of union uh, jobs that are going to build a bridge like this. And, um, you know, he's voted with government workers, um, you know, a handful of times. So I think he, he knows that um, it's, it's not the district really to be uh, some kind of uh, ideologue. Um, but, uh, he, he, and, but, you know, leadership can be very persuasive when they, when they want to be, uh, in this case, and back in 2021, they really wanted to show that opposition to the, the democratic agenda was unanimous. And, and so they're, you know, and he, he still has, even though it's a relatively safe district now, he still has to run for reelection and the, the party leadership in Washington still controls the purse strings. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure he was, uh, they leaned on him hard to vote no. And as a result, he voted against this, uh, this bridge. And I think, uh, he's going to have trouble anytime now. Um, you know, I mean, it's one of the biggest pieces of infrastructure in, in the district. He's going to have trouble anytime he goes near that thing. Uh, because everybody's always going to remind him that he voted against it. So, you know, there's going to be a ribbon cutting. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of, uh, incremental steps at this bridge. And uh, he's he's going to uh, catch some uh, some trouble every time he he goes near it. And finally, want to move on to one more story before we wrap things up today, and that has to do with uh, what Madison McVan wrote, titled "Whiter, Richer High Schools in the Twin Cities uh, Twin Cities Area Send More Students to College." Because a new study by researchers at the Institute of Metropolitan Opportunity at the University of Minnesota Law School shows that whiter, richer high schools in the Twin Cities are sending more students to college. The report compared 30 Twin Cities area high schools that send the highest percentage of students to college to the 30 schools that have the lowest four-year graduation and college enrollment rates. Top 30 high schools for college access are, no surprise, 73% white, while the bottom 30% or the bottom 30 schools are more than 80% students of color, kind of highlighting a problem that we've known about for a long time here in Minnesota. But I'm curious what jumped out at you here from this study, Patrick. At least for me, what really kind of caught my eye was the fact that among the struggling schools, 22 were charter schools compared, when we look at the top 30, only five were charter schools. Because sometimes we hear about, well, charter schools could be a solution when, well, all of a sudden we look at this report and see so many of those 30 failing schools, 22 are charter schools. So that kind of caught my eye, at least as I uh, read through some of this information. Right. Minnesota is the birthplace of the charter school uh, movement. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's a legitimate debate that is happening around the country about the effectiveness of charter schools. But this certainly is a bad, a bad look uh, for the charter schools that are uh, that make up a, a huge percentage of the 30 uh, worst schools. Uh, and but the other uh, key point here is that um, what this research shows, and I, I think that the, uh, it's, it serves a purpose here. It's it's going to help uh, make the case in this ongoing Cruz Guzman school desegregation lawsuit mm-hmm. that uh, segregation clearly um, has led to uh, worse outcomes um, for students who uh, wind up stuck in these uh, highly segregated schools. Um, uh, we know that um, uh, the, the, the Cruz Guzman case uh, received um, was sent back to uh, the lower court after the Supreme Court said um, that s- said that what they had to do uh, was was prove that uh, that segregation 
which is certainly a, uh, a serious problem in metro area schools, proved that segregation has led to worse academic outcomes uh, for, for black and other uh, kids of color. And I think this, uh, this study uh, does some of that work. And, and, and the, the, the backers of the lawsuit uh, were very confident after the Supreme Court's ruling uh, that that the, the the case would move in their direction because they knew they would be able to show that segregated schools uh, provide worse outcomes uh, for black students and I think this uh, this certainly shows that here um, and and so I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, how they continue to pile up evidence of uh, the, the effects of segregated schools. It's hard to believe that. Um, 60, 70 years after Brown v. Brown v. Board of Education, 70 years, I guess, uh, we're still having to have this debate, but here we are. Yeah, absolutely. And even if we looked at a few of the top 30 schools among them, were Central High School in St. Paul, Washburn High School, and then also Southwest High School in Minneapolis. So there are some in the in the inner city areas that are having a lot of success. And as the as Madison writes about, those schools are more racially and economically diverse than than some of the other similarly performing high scores. So performing high schools, high performing schools, easy, easy for me to say. I think at this point I better wrap things up. But uh, anyways, that is a good point, though, of talking about how this could have an impact on that Cruz Guzman lawsuit as well. I didn't even think of that aspect. But, yeah, it certainly is more evidence in their case to show that segregation is uh, not helping with student outcomes here in Minnesota. Well, you have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics, minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Don Carr is kind enough to join us for over 15 years. Don Carr has investigated, written about America's worst polluters from the gas fields of North Dakota to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. His writing has been featured in Political Sierra Magazine, the Washington, D.C. City Paper, Huffington Post, Grist, Civil Eats, and other places as well. And uh, he's appeared on numerous outlets as well. He has a brand new book, a piece of fiction, though, The Midnight Rambler. It's a hardcover. It's going to be out, and he is going to be over at Kama, a bookshop tonight. It's in Linden Hills, 4250 Upton Avenue South in Minneapolis. He'll be there from 630 to 8, and he's kind enough today to join us to talk about the book and the signing. Don, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Matt, it's really great to be on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for the time. Now, once again, I want to start with the fact that you have you have taken a path. I've I've talked to other people that have done this as well. You've taken a path that um, that some people have. They've they've been a writer. They've been reporting news, especially kind of feature reporting. But then at some point, you made the decision. I'm going to write something. I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> So first of all, let's talk about your writing about covering, you know, the the polluters. I mean, that's that's some pretty noble work you've been doing out there. Well, that's kind of you to say. Yeah, for about the past 15 years, 
either for uh, outlets or for national environmental groups like uh, EWG or the Environmental Defense Fund, I've done investigations and reporting on um, from everywhere from the, the gas fields of North Dakota down to the, the, the Gulf of Mexico dead zone. And it's been really a rewarding writing career to do that and, and to research and do those investigations. But as you said, you know, the dream is for a lot of writers um, is to kind of write that novel, you know, that you got kicking around in your head. And I grew up reading a lot of my heroes, Elmore Leonard, Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum, those t- style books. And so I really wanted to write a, a novel in that vein. Well, and 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 so, and first of all, congratulations! That's really cool. I mean, I, I've I've had authors on. It's always fun to talk to a first time author, uh, in, in not not necessarily writer, but you've got your first book out there. Congratulations! That is a really big deal, man. Thank you very much. It's it's super gratifying to hear that. And uh, yeah, I did the whole process. The whole experience has been fantastic, and then you know to have the the writing community here in Minnesota embrace you and help you out and and uh, do book signings and all those other things are going on. It's just it's just been it's just been a dream. And you're not joking about that. William Ken Kruger, Elaine Shannon, Bob Meyer, uh, Heather White, uh, Doug Parker, all uh, writing very complimentary things. So let's talk about it. how did you approach once again the book is the Midnight Rambler, a novel. How did you coming from your background? How did you approach going in? I'm going to write this novel. Well, you know, it, it, like everything else, it's a strange occurrence. I had I've had the luck to go to Italy with my wife on her sabbatical, and she had a month-long sabbatical in Italy, and she was smart enough to pick uh, just one town to do her sabbatical in, as opposed to being a tourist all over the country. And so she picked beautiful Positano, which is on the Amalfi Coast. And so I'm sitting in, in Positano, and I'm, I'm looking down at this bay full of these amazing yachts, because it's a really wealthy kind of enclave. These massive yachts are in the bay, and growing up, you know, watching Bond movies and, and reading these spy novels, I kept thinking to myself, when's one of these explode. And so that was kind of like the impetus of, of, of how the story started. And then while I was there, two other things happened. One was we were driving by Mount Vesuvius and uh, there was smoke coming off Mount Vesuvius. And I asked the driver, like, you know, like anyone with a volcano, is it active? And he said, no, that's the mafia. And it turns out for over 40 years, the mafia in southern Italy has been taking toxic chemicals, dumping them on Mount Vesuvius and just setting them on fire. And so this kind of gave me the kind of gestation for the story and where it was going to go. And then when I got stateside, um, I was actually working on a nonfiction book proposal about biofuel fraud. And in that process, I interviewed a bunch of EPA special agents. Now, I'd worked and written about the environment for 15 years. I didn't realize uh, the Environmental Protection Agency had special agents that had guns, badges, and were kicking down doors and you know, arresting polluters. And when I had that realization, that's when everything kind of clicked together in terms of I have a really great idea for a protagonist that no one's ever really written about. And there's tons of books about the FBI, the CIA, but no one ever done the EPA. And then finally, the, the Midnight Rambler component is, and this is strange, but this is how things work. I was in Italy. I was reading a book. I was reading the, the, the 50 songs that make the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Ch- number, chapter 24 is about the Midnight Rambler, and it turns out Mick and Keith wrote that song in Positano, the only song they'd ever written in Italy, and it's about uh, a serial killer. It's about the Boston Strangler. And so all those kind of components together really brought the idea uh, to the fore. All right, I I'm, I don't want to skip past the lead here. Uh, what was that about the mafia dumping toxic waste into Mount Vesuvius? <laughs> Holy God, you're serious that they are dumping toxic waste into Mount Vesuvius? <laughs> it is a it is a long tradition in Italy and in, in southern Italy. There's a there's a whole middle management called stakes, and these are are people that they their whole job is they broker between companies in the EU because the EU has much more stringent. 
uh, pollution controls for, for uh, manufacturers than we do here in America. So they're always looking at ways to get rid of their waste, and the Kimura Mafia is there, and for a price, will take that off their hands. And then they, their attitude is simply they dump it on Mount Vesuvius and, and start it on fire. <laughs> and so you have cancer rates skyrocketing in the area. Wow. It has been a decades-long problem, and the Mafia there uh, only thinks day-to-day. They never think about the long-term consequences. Yeah, we used to throw virgins into volcanoes, too. We, we kind of learned our lesson on that one. That wasn't going to stop uh, make it rain or anything like that. All right, so uh, so why don't you give us the, the, the synopsis here? Uh, why don't you give us just a little bit of a breakdown? What exactly is the Midnight Rambler about? It's about EPA Special Agent Sophie Grant, and she is tasked with going to Italy to fight this toxic waste dumping cartel because the place they're dumping the chemicals is right next to the U.S. Joint uh, Naval Base, which has 10,000 service members and their families. So their water is getting polluted by this, uh, and that's the threat to America. That's how it's, it's justified that Sophie's sent over there. But when she's there, she, incur- she engages in a broader conspiracy that is actually ensnares her long estranged father. So it's a story about a father and a daughter connecting as well. Talk about, uh, obviously, you bring the chops when it comes to understanding environmental issues here. But then how? what was your process about stepping back and stepping away from this and not making this sound like a news story? Because it, it sounds like, I mean, obviously, it, it's, uh, it's got some parallels and it could easily do that. So talk about the process for you of making sure this stayed a novel and just didn't become sort of, you know, kind of news fan fiction. That's a great question. And, you know, two things I'll say to that. First is, you know, I spent the bulk of my career and the bulk of my day kind of writing in that vein, this very dry, kind of pointed, you know, investigative journalism style. And so not, and not wanting to do that, you know, the, just the joy of writing something creatively, I wanted to break away from that. And then second, I'm just a huge fan of, like, all the action movies of the 90s that I grew up on. So you know, whether it's Armageddon or, you know, Die Hard, well, that was late 80s, but, you know, those, those style of movies. And so I would put myself in the headspace of kind of an action thriller headspace space by just churning and rewatching those movies over and over again that kind of put me more of a like a playful over-the-top action movie headspace the yeah it, let's also talk about developing a character because it's obviously one of the things and, and as i've worked i'm not a journalist i'm i'm a you know a talking chimp but at the same time i work in the kind of the news media side and so you 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 meet people and you know, obviously they're real people in there talk about how hard it was for you to kind of create the well-rounded character well, thank you. And, and, you know, for me, the, this, you know, Sophie, this female protagonist who is the EP special agent, she's kind of grizzled. She's in the middle of her career. And I had a lot of people kind of to draw from and make a composite out of it. Um, you know, my mother, um, my wife is an environmentalist. And so I kind of brought those thoughts into it. And then I've worked with a ton of really strong, powerful women in the environmental movement who are fearless, who are on the front lines, you know, fighting for clean water and clean energy. And I drew all those kind of personalities into make this composite character. Do you feel as if, as a person who does the reporting, and I think sometimes it becomes a drone because basically um, there's a lot of corporate interests that don't want to change the way things are. I mean, we're looking at a current situation. It's going to be 50 freaking degrees in Minneapolis next week in early February. (laughs) We clearly have a broken planet. We need to do things, but yet we're still having people doing everything in their power to make sure nothing ever changes. Do you feel as if, you know, okay, fine, I mean, if we we can put the news stories out there, but if we start creating relatable fictional characters that are dealing with these issues, it might actually resonate in more, more areas? 
Matt, you've really drilled down on something really important there. One is folks like you are out there make, you know, helping get these messages out all day long, and I need to thank you for that. But to, the, to your question, um, I did a couple stories for Sierra Magazine in the past year, uh, and I talked to people in Hollywood. And there's a big movement in Hollywood to make sure climate change and environmental issues are brought to the screen. They're brought into our scripted entertainment. And the, the reason people think that's so important is, as you said, you can, he you can hear as many reports about you know, the sky is falling, we're going to have you know, a tick infestation if we don't have enough cold winter months here in Minnesota. All the bad things are going to happen to us from our, from our environment. But we kind of get glazed over and, and, and bored by that. So by kind of incorporating storytelling in, into, the, into the narrative, into the environmental narrative, and then, you know, when you're watching a TV show and you're following that character through the woods, you're identifying with them and what they believe. And the hope is that when you integrate more of these you know, themes, and you don't have to hit people in the head, right? I mean, my book is a whole, just a big explosion of fun and action adventure with just a little side serving of broccoli. That's kind of how I looked at it, right? <laughs> just like, like put that little spoonful of medicine in. Um, I think that's kind of the way that we tell these stories and, and, and get people more, more, more aware of what's happening with our planet. You obviously, I, I'm, presu I'm hoping this has gone well for you so far. Are you having plans for uh, obviously making this into a series? It is a three-book series plan, yes. I don't want to get, give too much away, All right. um, but, but the next book will be a little more focused on the Midwest, and it'll be Superior and my home state of South Dakota will, will play in this a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's a three-book series, and, and uh, I'm excited. I'm already starting the second one. I know some I know some areas we could go do some writing about. <laughs> yes, I, sure. I, I presume you already got it already, but I already I got a few places we probably could you know put side notes in there. Uh, well, congratulations on this. Uh, who's the publisher? Let's make sure we mention them too. Corler Books is the publisher, and they're fantastic, and I love my publisher. Beautiful. They always do. Uh, Corler Books. <laughs> All right, so the event tonight, and it is tonight. We want to make sure people get out there. 6.30 to 8 tonight. It's where at, once again? It is at Comma, a bookshop, which is at uh, 4250 Upton Avenue in Linden Hills. All righty. And once again, Don Carr is going to be there. The book is going to be available, and I encourage people to stop on out and enjoy this. Don Carr, the book, once again, The Midnight Rambler, just out right now. Don, congratulations on the first novel. That is a huge deal. A big, big congratulations there. All my best tonight, and by all means, come back when you get the second book done, okay? Absolutely, Matt. Thank you, and thanks for everything you do on your show. Really appreciate it. Bye. I appreciate it. Don Carr, kind enough to join us. The Midnight Rambler is the book. We'll take a break. Come on back. Wrap up the show on a Tuesday. When we do return, it's the Matt McNeil Show on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show, 952-946-6205. So I got to tell you one thing that's kind of funny. And just a, It's, it's a kind of a, a private thing here. But um, my wife and I, back when we, I think we were just married. So this is way a while back. Uh, we had a fantastic date. There was a big band. It was a, it was a. It was something to do with the VFW. And I've been, I had been part of the VFW. And I think American Legion was involved. And they did a big band swing party dance at an airport. And they had all these guys from World War II, Korea War. They were just great. It was so much fun. And as a matter of fact, I think my wife and I were by far, like by 20 years, the youngest people there. And we danced and we, 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 we did some dancing and stuff like this. Now, I've also, I'm not, I mean, we're not. This is not Dancing with the Stars. I mean, this is not, I've got, I don't have sequence. Well, I have some sequence, but I, once again, only fans. Uh, I have had um, some 
you know, a, a few times where we've gone out, like we were down in South Carolina a few years back and just, you know, listening to great blues and going out and dancing. When I was in New Orleans, we just music everywhere. You can't help but dance around that city. So, I mean, we've done this. And so it was funny. The This year for, for Christmas, I said to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to go buy some dancing lessons for my wife and I, and we're going to go learn how to dance because, you know, I am kind of clunky. I'll be the first to say, you know, imagine Frankenstein, you know, think Peter Boyle and young Frankenstein. You know, okay, there you go. And so I, I did this. And so it's Christmas. I've got this thing. Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to go to this dance studio. My wife, we, we, we hand out Christmas gifts. I, I'm opening up Christmas gifts, and I got one. She goes, oh, this one's for me. I said, okay. And she has not opened her gift yet. I open it up. She herself gave me dance lessons to myself because we, we've been talking about this. And I think we've talked about it when we come back from New Orleans a little bit that, uh, that we wanted to you know maybe do a little bit more with that. So shock and awe, shock and awe, indeed. Um, yeah, I indeed uh, – we both got each other dance lessons. So tonight I'm actually going to go dance. And so all the stuff's going to get posted, but it's going to get posted later because I'm going to be dancing the that away. How bad, Patrick, how bad do you think I will look out there? Uh, let's just say I'm glad I won't be there. You know, my, the, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Have <laughs> <laughs> you ever heard the story of the wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald, man? Oh, okay, I get it. All right. Waves are going to swamp me. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, the grace, beauty, and intelligence that my kids got all came from her. Uh, love of Doctor Who came came from me and baseball. So that's, that's you know, I really, once again, I, I'm i fighting out of my weight class here. I'm going to be honest with it. But uh, I, I'm looking forward to this. I will let you know how it goes tomorrow, uh, how this all goes. As a matter of fact, I should mention, uh, you know, Paul Hodes is going to join us once again. This is the congressman from New Hampshire. He's going to come and join us and talk about the results. I got Stein tomorrow to talk about results. So we're already jam packed with goodness for your uh, for your uh, uh, your Wednesday. So make sure you're here for that. Reminder once again that coming up here in just a few moments, uh, people are going to be upset. Or I, I don't think even if Mauer doesn't make it. I, okay, once again. I would be stunned. And I got I've got the MLB channel open right now. I would be stunned, stunned, stunned if Joe Maurer did not make it in on the first time. If he doesn't, he'll be in I got to believe in the second year. I I think it, it's it, the response to him even if he doesn't make it this year. I think that it, it's going to be he's going to go in. Like I said, I'll be I'll stand by my, you know, I'll stand by my uh argument though. I think uh, I think that basically I I wouldn't vote for him. I wouldn't put him in. It's close, it's close, but it's it's not going to be there. All right, they're not updating it now, so I can't tell you uh, how that's going to go. But I like I said, my expectation is he will be in the Hall of Fame by uh, by the you know next thirty minutes for sure. Uh, Native Roots Radio is coming up next. Have a good one. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see ya.